0: All right, so um, we have been studying joy. In fact, the title of the series is Ode to Joy. Um, I'm kind of in between series. We did like two years in Luke, and I'm going to trip over this, so I'm going to just, boy, that's heavy. That's worth more than my car, right? That's <laughs> it's not that expensive. I just have a cheap car. Um but we've been, uh, we're in between series, we've done Luke, uh, we've got Easter coming up, and we'll, we'll take a look at uh, the events around the cross and the resurrection, and then we'll enter into a new book. Um, but right now we're just going to do this topical series on joy, and last week I put this guy's picture up, and you all know who that is, I of course asked the missionary kids um, from South Asia, who are little, if they knew who it was, and I, don't, I don't know, well, why would they know? Um, but that's Tom Brady, he's called the GOAT, and he now has seven Super Bowl rings, um, his salary is $25 million, that's just for regular season, so that, that equals $1.5 million a game, Okay. His net worth, they say, is about 200 million. But he's also married to Giselle, who's a supermodel. And uh, word around the internet is that her net worth is about 400 million. Okay? So um, he's the man who has it all. Now, back when he only had a mere three Super Bowl rings, He was interviewed, and he said this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, Hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. So then the interviewer said, Well, what, what do you think it is? What's the answer? And he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I, I, I don't think it was a fourth ring, or a fifth ring, or a sixth ring, or a seventh ring. Okay? He's, a, he's at least honest. I've got it all, but some, I'm, something's missing. There's got to be more to life than this. Now, Tom, Tom Brady's called the goat as a quarterback, but there was an even greater goat, who lived 3,000 years ago, the the greatest goat of all time when it comes to saying, there's got to be more than this, right? We're going to talk about King Solomon today. Solomon lived 3,000 years ago. He was the king of Israel. He was the son of David. And he was the richest, wisest, most overpleasured man who ever lived. And at the end of his life, he wrote um, a little book. Actually, it's 12 chapters uh, in the Old Testament called the Book of Ecclesiastes. And he wants to pass on to us wisdom so we don't waste our lives. Right? In Ecclesiastes, in the first two chapters, he talks about, he actually goes on a lifelong experiment To find satisfaction and happiness. And he experiments with wine, wealth, women, and wisdom. Let's see what we can learn from King Solomon. Okay, Now, first first thing you need to know is that um, the first king of Israel was Saul. He was a bad guy. He's replaced by King David. And when David inherits the kingdom, uh, he inherits the red area of Israel. And then through battles and wars, he expands, King David expands Israel to the orange area. And then when Solomon takes over the kingdom, he expands Israel uh, to the furthest it's ever been north, up to the Euphrates River, all the way down to the Red Sea. Um, it's the largest the borders uh, of Israel has, has ever been, and it had ever been, or has ever been. They still didn't knock the Philistines out. They're the ones right on the Mediterranean Sea in the elbow there. Okay, um, But he expanded Israel to uh, the largest it's ever been. Now, in First Kings, in a paragraph, we read about his accomplishments. So the first thing that the author of Kings talks about is his throne room. Uh, His throne was made of pure ivory, which involves some elephants. right? And then the throne was, was overlaid with pure gold. And then his armrests were carved lions, and then there were a series of carved lions going down the stairs. And the author of Kings says this, the like of it was never made in any kingdom. So it was the, uh, the greatest throne room uh, that has ever been made. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Now you go, well, so his cup was gold. Well, um, when a king like this had dinner, it wasn't just him. It was his court and his military officials and hundreds of people. And all of the, the cups were made of of pure gold, so much gold in Israel that silver was worthless. All right? Now, why this mention of the cups? Well, um, Solomon didn't just drink water. Okay? He didn't just drink Coke Zero. I would have been the Coke Zero guy. But uh, we are told in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1, And this is part of his experimenting to find the meaning of life. He says, or I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. So I'm going to seek joy and satisfaction in... Wine and folly, okay? Enough, though, that his mind was still capable of analyzing, am I happy? Am I happy? But when you're the richest man in the world and you have access to all the wine in the world, I imagine he experimented uh, and and found out some interesting things about wine and folly, all right? Bring in the comedians, bring in the jesters, bring in the entertainers. So, um, his first experiment is with wine. It goes on and it says, For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at the sea with the fleet of Hiram. So two fleets of ships. And these ships, their goal was to go out and bring back treasure. Once every three years... The fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Right? So he's out, he's, he says, go out and get your gold, and, but bring back exotic treasures. Right? Bring back, uh, I, I want to I have a zoo. You know, if you've ever been to Fabian, uh, Fabian Forest Preserve, Colonel Fabian had a a cage for a lion and an alligator in his pond um, kind of reminds me uh, of Solomon. I want to have the grandest zoo in the world, okay? Verse 23, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Richest man on the planet, right? Now, what about, what, what's this about wisdom, Well, once God appeared to Solomon in a dream, and he said, Solomon, ask for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. What would you ask for if God granted you that, your request? What would you ask for? Well, he said, I'm a young man. I don't understand things. Give me wisdom so I can lead this people. And God said, good answer. Because you didn't ask for for wealth, I'm going to give you not only wisdom, but wealth. I'm going to give you both. In fact, uh, Solomon wrote three books in the Bible. Who can name them? Song of Solomon. Solomon. If you can't get that one, (laughs) Ecclesiastes and a lot of the Proverbs, okay? So... Uh, 1 Kings 4.30 says that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men. Okay, he was wiser than everybody else. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Okay. Verse 24 of kings. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. So we read uh, in Kings of the Queen of Sheba, who gathers up a caravan and travels, it says over land and sea, but she she went all the way from Yemen, present-day Yemen, up to Israel, because she had heard that there is the wisest man in the world sitting on a throne in Israel. So I want to go learn from this man. Right? Every one of them, every one of his visitors from all over the world, verse 25, uh, brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together Chariots and horsemen. He had fourteen hundred chariots. One was a BMW. One was a Lexus. Right? I don't think he had a, a Chevy Cruise, though. So. Um, but he had fourteen hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen, whom he stationed at the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone riches beyond measure, smartest man, wisest man on the planet, fill my cup with wine. One more, one more thing. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, 1,000 women in his harem. You can fill in your own comments here. Okay. Only comment I'd like to make is it's 300 concubines, not 300 porcupines, which sometimes we get confused. Um, By the way, the 700 wives, a lot of times that is a political marriage where um, that shows that he is in alliance with uh, that country. So what this would tell you is if he had 700 political wives, he would have a reach over 700 Uh, territories, cities, countries, all right? So he's got everything. Now, would you be happy if you were him? Would you be happy being the richest, wisest man in the world? Well, in Ecclesiastes, here's what he says. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. Uh, some translations translate that word meaningless or emptiness. Um, most people today would say the best translation would be elusive. It's, it's like It's like fog. You go to grab it, and it's not there. All of it was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And then in verse 17, so I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Now, of course, the answer is he needed a Super Bowl ring, right? No, that wouldn't have done the trick. Now, notice I've underlined the the three words, under the sun in verse 11 and in verse 17, under the sun. Many have observed that in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, there's no mention of God until, until the very last three verses. So there are 41 godless verses and the theme is joylessness and despair. But finally, when we get to the last three verses in chapter 2, we hear about joy and enjoyment. And God is mentioned three times. So, what does it mean that he lived under the sun? What are we to, to make of that term? Well, many people think that, that under the sun is referring to To living with our eyes only on the things of this world, not factoring in the things in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean Solomon denied the existence of God. I mean, he built the temple, he wrote three books of the Bible. Okay? So, this isn't atheism. I would almost call it secularism. Yeah, God exists, but his focus was not on God. He didn't fear God or revere God or, or put him first as his obsession. So he wasn't an atheist. He was a believer, but even believers can live Under the sun, with our focus here, not on God. So, under the sun, let's define it this way it's seeking your ultimate satisfaction in the gifts of God rather than in God Himself. Living under the sun is seeking your ultimate satisfaction in the gifts of God not in God himself. But now, when we get to Ecclesiastes 24, finally there's some hope. He says this, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Stop right there. This is not nihilism. Nihilism is, um, there's no God, there's no purpose, so just eat, drink, live for yourself, and then die. All right? This is what Solomon actually desired. I remember when when we were in Wisconsin, we lived in this little tiny house, three babies, and um, We didn't even make enough money to have a patio, so we went cheap. And um, I got a bunch of pavers and built a little, I guess it was a patio, right? Um, It was kind of crooked and sinking. Um, And then uh, we got finally a patio set, right? And one day we were outside eating, and the kids were eating. And somebody from the church wanted to stop by. Um, And I remember we said, sit down. And he he sat down, and we were eating our meal. And this guy owned a company, and um, he was married to a beautiful woman, and she was powerful in the business world. And he he just sighed, and he said, what I would give to enjoy a meal like this. He had everything, but there was something missing that he, that, that he found right in this little poor family eating out on their patio. Right? That's what Solomon is doing. He's going, oh, I'll take that over this. And, and notice, uh, and, and, and by the way, there is something just satisfying about eating a meal. You know, the the king of enjoying food is my son, Josh. Okay. Josh will, you know, he'll he'll make a production out of it. And if it's just a box of cereal, he'll he'll put his cereal in the bowl and he'll get his milk and he'll sit down at the table all by himself and he will (laughs) enjoy every bite of that cereal. Josh is a man of fine taste, right? Sometimes he'll drive across town and he'll get like Wendy's and he'll have his drink and his napkin and he'll lay it all out and he'll just mm, sit down and eat. Once once I was in, the, in the, the room, it's adjacent to the kitchen, I'm working on my computer and, and I hear Josh banging around in the kitchen and, um, He's in the refrigerator, and he's opening things and closing things. He's in there for 20 minutes. And finally, I go, Josh, what are you doing? And he walks by, and he says, making the deli platter. <laughs> <laughs> and he would just sit down and eat his deli platter. Okay, so, so um, you know what, though? When we're, when we're stressed out and we're not at peace... Not even eating a meal is satisfying. Now look what he says at the end, last sentence of verse 24. This also I saw is from the hand of God. There's nothing better than to eat, drink, find satisfaction in work. And this ability to find this satisfaction comes from God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Here's the connection between joy and and having an enjoyable meal. Finding enjoyment in your work, it comes from God. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only To give to the one who pleases God. He's going to lose it all anyways. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, verse 26 he says, For to the one who pleases him. This isn't about working to please God. This is about placing your hope in God. To the one who places his hope in God, not even in God's good gifts, but in God himself. All right? (laughs) Is that me making noise again? I'm going to just put it right here and not move. All right. Um, what, What I think all of Ecclesiastes is getting at, is this. Solomon needed to de-idolize. What's de-idolizing? Taking God's good gifts off the throne as being able to provide ultimate satisfaction and putting God back on the throne. Now, I am not saying you necessarily need to throw those gifts away. In fact, when you put God back on the throne and you see these as mere gifts, you actually start to enjoy them. Okay? Let me give you, and I'll do these somewhat quickly, um, three joy-producing results of de-idolizing. Put God back on the throne and take those gifts off the throne. Number one, we will not be so disappointed with life. You know, idols can even be good things, like your kids, your spouse, things that aren't sinful. Now, you go, my kids are sinful. No, I don't mean that. I mean, making them your all in all, that is turning them into an idol. Tim Keller writes this. He says, When we make something into an idol, it continually makes us miserable. If our children are our false god, when their lives are troubled, we will lose our joy. And even when their lives might become troubled, which is all the time, we will worry and lose our joy. They can't provide the satisfaction that only God can provide. Now, when we take the pressure off of them to make us ultimately happy, you know what you discover? You can actually enjoy them with their imperfect choices and their imperfect decisions. Don't abandon them, but get them off the throne. You know, the same is true with marriage. I've never heard this verse read at a wedding ceremony. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 28. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. (laughs) I'm going to work that in to the next wedding sermon. Okay. Um, what's, What's he saying here? Well, If you you read all of chapter seven, Paul is saying marriage is a wonderful gift from God. But if God has given you the grace to stay single, as Paul was, do it. Why? Because I guarantee you, when you get married, there's going to be trouble and problems and conflict. You get two selfish sinners living together under the same roof, producing more and more selfish sinners. There's going to be some friction. Okay, um, when you get married, it's not going to be a Hallmark movie. Sorry, right. you can only hope, right? Um, once, okay. So Elizabeth does marriage counseling, and uh, once we were doing a talk, and she said, "You know, the the key to marriage is to lower your expectations." And I'm like, "What?" Um, let's qualify that and say this. If you have your spouse on the throne that only belongs to God, do yourself a favor. Lower the godlike status that you've given them to make you happy, but bring them back down to mere mortal status and enjoy the sinner that God has given you. Right. You know, uh, we can buy into secularism, which can be an R-rated movie or a Hallmark movie. Both can make the spouse an idol. You know, same is true of, of uh, church. You can so place all your, your expectation in a happy life in, in your church. I mean, you, you should make church your priority, right? But it's still full of sinners. I I always find it interesting when somebody says, you know, I, I, what I'm looking for is a church that's like the first century church. And I go like, which one? Like the Corinthians? Who, uh, Here's the problem with the Corinthians. They were dividing over personalities. They were stabbing Paul in the back. They were involved in sexual immorality, incest. They were suing one another. They had wrong views about sex, singleness, and divorce. They were full of discontentment. They had weaker, stronger brother issues. They were participating in the pagan festivals. At communion, they were getting drunk There was selfishness and cliques. There was chaos during the worship service. There was arrogance over spiritual gifts. There was a lack of love. There was gender role issues. There was denying the resurrection of the dead and irregular giving. That'd be a good church to be like, right? I was talking to my daughter the other day about her church. and um, So we were talking about church, and she goes, Dad, you just got to remember... Don't overrealize your eschatology. (laughs) And I go, where did you get that? She said, from you. I go, well, I know what it means, but you remember what it means? Here's what it means. Um, We we get saved out of this sinful world, and there's a new world of perfection coming. In fact, the two overlap. We're in this middle stage, but we're far from perfection. Hopefully, we're not like we used to be, but some people can say, "Well, it's the church, or it's a Christian marriage, or it's a Christian family." I expect perfection. Don't overrealize your eschatology. Okay. So the first uh, the first point is this: when we put God back on the throne, um, we can we can actually start to enjoy His good gifts. But He won't tolerate us turning those gifts in. To idols, so so. We, first thing is we won't be so disappointed with life. Second thing that comes from taking the, these things off the 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 altar and putting God back there is we can find joy and eternal significance. And by the way, my uh, <laughs> my iPad is disconnected, so I don't know if you can advance it to the next one, Deb. There we go. We can find joy and eternal significance. Even in the small things in life, okay, Solomon, one of, one of his great laments in Ecclesiastes is that we're all going to die and anything we accomplish won't be remembered. You know, the moment we die, it'll be forgotten. So Ecclesiastes one eleven says, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things. Yet, to be among those who come after. Because we all die and we don't remember. So let me ask you this. Um, Who won the 2007 Super Bowl? Not the Bears. Right? (laughs) Who won the uh, 1999 World Series? Not the Bears. (laughs) But, but, but. I mean, can you imagine all the money and the effort and the, the, the energy that goes into getting those, those trophies? And we can't even remember a few years back. Who was the president before JFK? You got, okay, so somebody actually knows their history, all right? <laughs> so here's what, what Solomon does at the end of the book, he says this the end of the matter. It's almost like a a title. here's Everything I've been lamenting, here's the answer. All has been heard. Fear God, revere God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, um, verse 14 is terrifying if you're an unbeliever. Every thought will be analyzed. But you know what? If you're a believer who's been forgiven, you've been justified in Christ, you trust in Christ, all your sins are transferred to him, his perfect record is transferred to you, you are forgiven. Now, you know what this verse is saying? Every decision you make, even when, when nobody's looking, has eternal significance. Every every decision, every move you make will be evaluated and remembered and rewarded eternally. If you take a look at the next slide, uh, Matthew 25, here's the parable of the talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. And then here's what I want you to see this week. I will set you over much. In the parable of the minas, remember the guy who, who returns 10 minas? He's put over 10 cities. The guy with five is put over five cities. Now, I don't know if we're to read literal stuff into that or how much of that is metaphorical or whatever. But what we do here on earth is not forgotten eternally. There is eternal significance. In every move you make. But when you live under the sun, it's all about the here and now and who's popular and how many clicks here and how many clicks there and how many likes you get. That's all forgotten. But every move, you know, know, Jesus talks so much about don't give so people can see you or you lose your reward in heaven. Don't pray so people hear your prayer or you lose your reward in heaven. There is an eternal reward. You're not, you don't earn salvation. You are saved by what Jesus did for you, but God in his grace chooses to make every decision that we make significant. All right, last thing is this. Number three, we can worship God every hour by being grateful for his gifts. When when you take those gifts off the, the throne and put God back on the throne, now you can worship God through those gifts by being thankful for them. So Elkhorn says this one more. We shouldn't seek the giver instead of the gifts. We should seek the giver through the gifts. Okay, so you can, you can fall on the one hand into idolatry. You can fall on the other hand into what you call asceticism. Asceticism is, I, I'm just going to deny all pleasures and live in a cave. No, no. The way it's supposed to be is God's on the throne. We see his gifts as genuine gifts, and we, we thank God for them. In fact, the enjoyment of every meal, every drive in the car, every beautiful stop at Walmart, right? Every time you talk on your cell phone. Isn't this amazing that we're connected to the internet and we can communicate and there's this app? Praise God that we have this convenience, okay? So let me, let me close with this. Uh, Randy Elkhorn in his book gives an example of how to just live in the presence of God thanking him for his gifts. So he says this. Well, taking a uh, a break from writing this book, I experienced a series of events that illustrates the relationship between the secondary and primary. So things are secondary. God is primary. First I stood out on our deck and looked up at the cold night sky, filled with the familiar stars I've known and loved since childhood. Then I returned to the warm house and pondered the immensity and beauty of the universe. I looked at a chair with Nancy's Bible beside it and thanked God for her, a woman of the word. She's part of a church team that writes and edits lessons for a, woman's, uh, a weekly women's Bible study. And that day she led the study. I pondered how Nancy and I have known each other for 45 years and that I love her more and more than ever. I marvel at God's grace in bringing us together and thanked him for our two wonderful daughters and our grandchildren. At that moment, Maggie, our golden retriever, sidled up And put her paw on my knee. I stroked Maggie's head and she gazed into my eyes and sighed deeply. I thank God for dogs and for Maggie in particular. And I contemplated how God reveals glimpses of himself through his creation. Maggie's loyal to me. God is loyal to me. She's beautiful. God is the maker of all beauty. Maggie makes me happy many times a day because I understand Maggie's true nature and role. I realize it is God in his kindness who makes me happy through her. So I poured out my heart in gratitude to him. All these secondary things are important because they point me back to God, the primary. All right. So, what can we learn from the goat? All right. Not Tom, but Solomon. Put God back on the throne. Receive his gifts, yes, his blessings. But don't worship them. Don't don't seek your ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world. They're elusive. They're like smoke. You'll never be satisfied. But when you get that relationship right, first of all, you won't be so disappointed with everything in life. Secondly, you can find joy and significance even in the small things. And thirdly, you can go through your day worshiping God, the giver of those good gifts. So let me pray and then uh, Andy, you can come up and uh, lead us with a closing prayer or closing song. Lord, um, we confess that we are so much like Solomon, maybe even in the morning having our relationship with you in line, but then getting sucked into the world around us and kicking you off the throne. So Lord, I pray that you would fill us with true joy. So we can enjoy a meal, a dog, a job, a car. Not worship those things, Lord, but praise you for them. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself uh, so we would place our ultimate hope of satisfaction in you and you alone. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.